Hey, Peter. Hey, Aaron. Get ready to start track five, The Final Frontier. Are you saying this is the final frontier for them to explore? We, we don't we don't riff in the intro, Peter. <laughs> Although, actually, the rules are relatively unestablished for are, Star we, Trek. Are, the only rule you've established is that our intro is bad, Aaron. I think yeah, I'm allowed to do whatever I we, want. We, we got one good intro out of We Love to Watch, and all of our spin-off co- uh, podcasts are garbage. Anyway, uh, sure, why not? podcast uh, uh start peter moran uh so yeah if you don't know this show why would you it's released very sporadically uh but uh peter moran aaron armstrong uh two separate people i'm the aaron armstrong part peter moran's the other guy you've heard talking i'm, I'm the peter moran part you're the peter moran portion uh, and, I'll, be, uh, I'll be bringing up the peter moran flank on that yeah one. oh good good because my peter moran impression as we know is uncanny and i don't want us to be twinsies Oh, Peter. <laughs> uh, anyways, what a terrible start. Uh, but uh, we're the co-hosts of a podcast called We Love to Watch. And uh, we've been doing that show. If you, I'm assuming most people listening to this have heard it. We've been doing that show about uh, three years when I discovered that Peter uh, never uh, never really watched anything Star Trek. He had seen uh, the t- first two Abrams reboots, and that was it. No episodes of the show, none of the Shatner movies, nothing. Yep, and uh, I had been a lifelong fan. It was like, truly, there's a couple things in my life that I became obsessive over for, uh, sh- you know, short amounts of time or longish amounts of time, like dinosaurs as a kid, Jurassic Park, uh, Star Trek, Godzilla. There's a few things like that where I just became obsessed over it, and Star Trek was one of those, especially uh, over junior high. Like, I had books that detailed the production making of every episode and would pour over those. So hearing that was a chance for me to introduce something that I've loved my entire life to Peter. And uh, we're on the fifth movie, which is Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, directed by Bill Shatt. And uh, we have been pairing them with episodes of the original series to give uh, Peter a flavor of what inspired the movies. And this week we've paired it with uh, the 17th episode. I would have to look that up. That's how much of a fucking nerd I am when it comes to Star Trek uh, of the original series called The Squire of Gothos. Which is, by the way, like if you say Squire of Gothos five times in the mirror, your virginity comes back. Uh, I think if you just say Squire five times uh, in the mirror, <laughs> it comes back. But uh, it is the most that is the most like you tra- use your worst nerd voice and say Squire of Gothos. I like, am the Squire yeah. of Gothos. Well, he is a little nerd, and that's kind of works. Yeah. So this this episode pairs well with the Final Frontier because they both feature godlike figures that are encountered by the Enterprise crew. It also is a really good intro as we're about to move into Next Generation and some stuff. To the Squire of Gothos character ended up getting kind of uh, influenced into one of the biggest parts of or recurring characters on the next generation that is uh, very much well loved so i'm 
I don't know if we'll do that when we go through the movies, but I was just talking to Peter about ways to go through kind of the Q arc on The Next Generation. And that is directly takes its inspiration from this episode. So it serves a wonderful dual purpose. And before we get too far... We are also joined by a six- or seven-time guest of We Love to Watch, our first guest on We Love to Watch, and someone who's uh, throwing a party in his house and eating Skittles because uh, he's been around <laughs> so long he uh, affords us no respect, um, Zach Groton. Hello. Hey, welcome back, Zach. Thank you. We, we always miss you. Well, uh, really, this isn't welcome back because I haven't been on this podcast before. Oh, yeah. Uh, welcome back to having a conversation with me. Uh, yeah. And hello to uh, Zach to the show. Yeah, so Zach is one of our favorite people, um, despite despite some of his... Despite uh, the way I treat him, Zach despite, is one of my favorite I don't think, is he, Am I treating him that way or is he treating us that way, Peter? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an important question you need to answer. I am reacting... To to the way that my podcast house Here, let's, is disrespected. Let's ask, let's ask Zach. Uh, Zach, how bad do you think you are? Uh, to the bone. <laughs> <laughs> All the way down. Deep Great. down to the bone. So, Zach, uh, before we get uh, too far into this, why don't you uh, introduce yourself a little bit more to our audience? Uh, if, if there's anything you want to plug or tell people where they may have uh, heard or seen you of, they haven't. Uh, if they haven't uh, listened to the We Love to Watch episodes you've been on. And also, why don't you give a kind of a quick brief history of your experience and your history with Star Trek. So far, we've had guests that are uh, obsessive like myself and some novices as well. So, Zach, take it away. Um, so I I don't, I don't know that anyone would have seen or heard me uh, anywhere except for on We Love to Watch podcast. You made a movie. Well, yeah, but that you're in. I think the, the, the view count's actually gone down since the last time. People were deleting their accounts after watching it. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, <laughs> no I, I did make a film, a short film called Subletting. You can watch that on uh, Vimeo. Maybe. It's very good. I'm yeah. actually not sure if you can watch that on Vimeo because my I don't I no longer have a Vimeo Pro account and so I might have it might have kicked some of my videos off of there, but it's up somewhere. Yeah, no, but so uh, right now I, I'm in New, I'm based out of New York. Uh, I'm doing video work for a, a sketch comedy group called Strawman Collective. Uh, if you're in New York City, you can see them every every two months at the Pit Loft uh, Comedy Theater, and um, also just doing freelance video work here and there. But yeah, so that's me. Uh, so what's your experience with Star Trek? My experience with Star Trek is somewhere, well, it's not as low as Peter's. Um, <laughs> I have seen about six episodes of the original series. I've seen one episode of Star Trek Enterprise. That's the second one, right? Uh, no, uh, it's The Next Generation. No, oh, yeah. Um, I've seen, I've seen featuring one Featuring epi- The Enterprise. Okay, yeah. I've seen one episode of Next Generation. And none of the rest. Which one? Uh, which ep- do you know? Which episode of the Next Generation? You I seen? do. It's I, the reason I know it's one specifically is because I've seen it twice. It's the one. Hold on, I've got something stuck in my teeth. <laughs> I, I had it out of my if, mouth. If, if Zach was actually like working for a competing podcast that came to sabotage <laughs> our shows, what would be the difference? <laughs> 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 that 
one wasn't wasn't negligence. That was a, that was its own problem. Um, <laughs> but no, so um, I have the episode of Next Generation I've seen is the one where um, Captain Picard gets beamed down to some planet along with some other guy, and the other guy only speaks in like these weird. Rules. Oh, Darmok. Yeah, uh, and I just I, no, and I remember it vividly because I, I we had to we had to watch it for a class I took in middle school. Uh, yeah, so that that episode actually won a lot of awards and is taught oh, in great. language classes. Yeah, we're yeah, we're probably was, gonna watch it uh, when we do our kind of uh, first three Star Trek Next Generation ones. It, it really yeah, is a great episode. It, it is, and I, I remember vividly. I remember it like even years. But I watched it in middle school and then again recently because I always would remember the Shaka when the walls fell is like the thing he keeps saying. Yep, which yeah. means like it's hopeless. Um, yeah, so that stuck it, with me. But um, I've seen like the first five episodes of the original series and then a, like two or three others. Okay, um, and I've seen all the movies up through the second. Uh, I think First Contact is the last next-gen movie I saw. I saw all the original series movies, Generations and First Contact, and then all of the reboots. Yeah, you skipped the two worst Star Trek <laughs> yeah, movies, Yeah, that's what I, that's think, what I so. hear. So. Um, uh, so that's interesting. Yeah, so you're definitely more on the novice side of Star Trek, which means most uh, incredibly uh, detailed uh, nerdy uh, components yeah. of this will be handled solely by me. That hasn't always no, been the case in these episodes. But I uh, will say, I really like what I've seen. Like, I like all of the... I, I like, to some extent, all of the original series movies, and I love the cast. I just never really got around to sitting down and watching the original series. I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, my... So, I really love the original series, and there's a lot of good episodes, and we've highlighted a few of those here... I just really think like the apex of Trek from a television show perspective is is the next generation and then the the best one from kind of a taking a lot of the happy uh Trek theming and turning it into um I don't want to say a darker place but a little bit like tackling a lot of more like earth issues and other stuff like that. Uh so Deep Space 9 is really really good. But, like, the most Star Trek-y of the Trek television shows is The Next Generation. And just an incredibly run of good episodes. I'm really excited to get into the show more than the movies um, when we when we get to that point. But um, it's something that just has so much content and so much of it is really good. Um, up until a point where it got really bad. And then it circled back around to being good again. Um, so, yeah. Zach, <laughs> I, Zach, why do you think it is that you you didn't dig deeper? Because I know exactly why I didn't dig deeper, and it's the impenetrability of the series. And that uh, just because I could turn on you know Sci-Fi Channel at any day at three o'clock and probably catch something doesn't necessarily mean like I I would feel like I I got the real experience. Like I, I would just probably feel like I was being dropped headfirst into a deep end. Um, it's not it for me because like I never had a problem getting into comics and they're way more impenetrable. That's why every time comics are doing a reboot and I was like, I guess I could jump on Spider-Man now and then a couple of years pass and I'm like, well, I guess I have to wait for another reboot. I mean, I, I, I used to think that way with comics, but then like, I don't know, I just jump in. I'm like, oh, I know what's going on. Well, in uh, a lot of the ways, like that's why I think like being a Sherpa for um, for Peter through this has probably been helpful. Like, 
I, I did have, like, I wouldn't have thought of it that way, but, you know, I started watching Star Trek with my dad, with a parent, and he, when I had questions about who's this guy or who are these people or what's going on with this, like, I would ask and he would answer. And, you know, eventually then not having as much access to uh, to just watch television whenever I want and, like, not a way to watch Star Trek unless it's on TV because um, yeah. there, there wasn't really a way uh, to just uh, DVR it or especially when I was that age. But like I would, I, but I had unlimited access to like books at the library. So I would start checking out all these Star Trek books. So I like read about how they made the costumes on Star Trek, the motion picture before I saw Star Trek, the motion picture. <laughs> so you just have a lot of time at that age to become yeah. obsessed about something. I, I just, I don't, I think when I was young, I just wasn't into that kind of science fiction. Like the hard sci-fi, you know, more interested in ideas. I was into Star Wars, you know, space opera, zip, you know, zipping around and fighting with swords and magic and stuff like that. That was the kind of stuff that interested me. So, like, I mean, I know it's cliche and probably a little bit more nuanced than than the cultural, uh, you know, picture of it all. But it really does, I think, a lot for a lot of people come down to you're either into Star Wars or Star Trek. Because they are kind of two different approaches to... I mean, they they really emblemize... Em, I don't know. Exemplify the two kind of different main approaches to science it's, fiction. It's like, yeah, it's like science versus fantasy, right? Yeah. Like, and it just feels like not productive to compare the two. Because no. like, it feels more productive to compare like the original Star Trek to, say, like Twilight Zone or Outer Limits. And then yeah. compare Star Wars it, to, you know... Uh, adventure serials, even if right. the adventure serials are about exploring Africa or punching yeah. Nazis or whatever, yeah. like uh, it feels it feels like those two are actually more more uh, close together than it is. Yeah, like, st- like but that's, and that's the kind of stuff I was into was the Star Wars and you know uh, the adventure stuff. So I just didn't get into Star Trek, and yeah. like so. But then, like, I mean, I got into, you know, Asimov and Arthur Clarke and the kind of stuff that I guess probably Star Trek was a gateway into for a lot of people. It worked yeah. the other way around for me. I got into that stuff and then came back to Star Trek. And some of those guys wrote Star Trek episodes yeah. like Harlan Ellison. So. Yeah, Harlan Ellison. Uh, yeah, you should watch that episode, Zach. It's really good. I've seen, I've seen that episode. Oh, okay. Yeah. Jumping onto the series at this point and not being any further in the series than where I'm at. I haven't jumped ahead to Next Generation stuff Good. or any of the shows after that. From my perspective, it seems like Star Trek found its its footing in the world um, in the 90s, like 30 years ago, where like the series started to realize, <clears throat> yes, we can have these big splashy action romp movies every few years, but... They always seem to come back to TV that's about small stories that you tell week to week that, you know, sort of serialized TV. Maybe there's a few arcs that go over a few episodes, but there's it's largely about we're going to explore this moral issue, this character failing this week, uh, this part of what makes humans human, what makes our characters characters. And uh, it, it seems to have found like what Star Trek is supposed to be like 30 years ago, where Star Wars, like we're still they're still kind of figuring out what the best, what the best, uh, you know, form of it is. In the 90s, it was all the side stuff. It was the crazy extended universe books that like, yeah. o- o- only like, and... 
only people that were still super hungry for that stuff read, uh, or video games that now, like, uh, haven't actually, most of them have not aged that well yeah. um, by cultural consciousness. Um, and, you know, and then uh, they started kicking off the new movies, and they were like, well, hey, we still want the side weird stuff, and then stuff like Solo Bombs. Um, and, and so, like, we Star Wars is still figuring out what the fuck it is, which is very, very interesting. Like, it's almost in, like, an anxious, uh, you know, self-identity moment where, like, Star Trek is like seem to, seems to know where it's at. Well, I th- I think um and you, I don't know how much we'll get there, but you have a good point. Like Star Trek kind of figured out and ran with it for a long time with these movies and TV shows. Like Star a Star Trek television show was on the air from eighty seven to two thousand five without a break, sometimes two at once. So that is uh, quite a long time to have like Star Trek on your TV, and like a lot of things that's around that long. The movie started to get bad. Insurrection and Nemesis are not good movies. And the shows started to get bad. Like, if Next Generation and um, Deep Space Nine, which ended in, I want to say, 1997 or 1998, those two were kind of the apex. Like, Voyager and then into Enterprise was like, didn't know they didn't know what to keep telling anymore. They didn't have a show to tell. And they just kept making Star Trek. And it kind of... Uh, fell away and I think between the Abrams reboot which has two great movies and one terrible one and uh, the, the the first season I've watched of Discovery I do feel like it's found its footing again um, where I agree Peter like Star Wars has been all over the place with like uh, extended universe maybe we're mostly video games here's three terrible prequels oh a couple <laughs> good ones oh here's a bad one again what are they gonna do after rise of skywalker now there's gonna be 80 tv shows like what the fuck is going on in the early 2000s i remember having conversations with friends because i grew up as a star wars nut i remember having conversations with friends that were essentially uh maybe star wars should just be like knights of the old republic and you know an occasional tie fighter game like maybe that's what star wars is supposed to be I don't know, like, especially with the prequels, I was like, I don't know if I want any more movies. Like, maybe they just can't do it again. Maybe, you know, especially as George Lucas has lost it and no one else can pick up the baton. Like, that was an actual conversation I was having with friends in the early 2000s, is that Star Wars should stay video games. Well, in 2000, like, if you were around in 2002 and you were arguing about Star Wars and Star Trek, your conversation was probably, like, whose was worse? Because for Star (laughs) Wars, you have, like, Attack of the Clones, and then for Star Trek, you have the first season of Enterprise that just wrapped up, and Star Trek track nemesis and it's probably like you know what they're both bad yeah Um, maybe we can both step away from those (laughs) yeah so anyways uh yeah let's um hopefully we haven't had that conversation before just because we have uh recorded these (laughs) with long spaces in between but uh we uh yeah we're gonna get into the episode so squire of gothas we'll do a quick recap it's an episode where uh the uh the enterprise crew finds a planet all of a sudden, people disappear off the bridge. They go down to investigate, and it's supposed to be a lifeless planet, but there's one pocket of oxygen, and it is all uh, decorated in, like, Napoleonic medieval uh, Earth stuff. And you find out that there's this person named Trelane who calls himself the Squire of Gothos who's been watching Earth, but because he forgot about how light years work, he's been watching it uh, eight, nine hundred years in the past and modeling his life on it. Uh, he, he seems to be somewhat all-powerful, and Kirk determines that he's not all-powerful. He's another one of these tricksters that we encounter who's using technology to control the crew in this mirror that he keeps uh, going towards. 
Uh, so Kirk and McCoy and Spock, they hatch a plan, as they always do, to uh, to stop the evil alien with his powerful technology and crash the mirror. And as they're leaving the planet triumphantly, the planet starts chasing them back. And they figure out that Trelane was – he liked his mirror – but he was at, he's actually almost a uh, – somewhat not all-powerful, not omniscient, but a somewhat uh, potentially uh, omnipotent um, godlike figure who then puts them on trial for breaking his toys uh, only for them to finally be rescued by the gods uh, – the god ki- uh, kid. You find out he's, this, he's essentially a kid whose parents let him go and try to do some stuff and they've been watching him and he is – he is grounded, mister – uh, and so he has to go away uh, to the world. And uh, as a quick side note, that idea of these like kind of omnipotent but not omniscient beings that exist in the Star Trek universe becomes huge. Uh, I shouldn't say huge, but one of the favorite recurring parts of The Next Generation, which we'll get to later. And this really was the inspiration for that, for people listening, not just from um, the concept of both this like continuum of godlike creatures – but also in the idea that, like, they have a unique fascination uh, with humanity. So uh, we'll, that's, a, that's a good, like, pin in it for later. But first, Peter, Zach, this is the first time watching this episode for you guys. What did you guys think of it? Uh, I was pretty into it. I, I, I feel like the setup is pretty lovely. Um, I, I think most people can probably get behind the the uh, outright dislike of the, these aristocratic, elitist, sort of like, you know, pre-guillotine um, <laughs> leaders, like these, these sort of guys who like... Yeah, you're 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 about to get your head lopped off because of the way you treat people and the way you treat uh, the different classes of people and uh, the way you just flaunt your wealth. Um, those sort of characters are inherently interesting as villains to me. Um, and you know, we modern we modernize that villain um, many ways by like making them you know a Hans Gruber type, um, talking about where he gets his suits from and all that. But ultimately, he's just uh, you know. A, he might be an aristocrat, but he's also just like a, you know, a petty man. Um, that's what's fun about this episode is that you get to see this character who has all of his laurels on, all of his, his he's wearing all of his money, and he has this sort of uh, power and excellence, um, even though it doesn't really, you know, doesn't mean he's actually rich, it just means he's like some sort of god that can uh, don opulence. But uh, throughout all that, you just get to see him get pettier and pettier and pettier as the episode goes on. It's a... Uh, it was just really fun to watch as a as an episode. It's full of surprises. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Um, it. If I have one, I had like one kind of quibble or a complaint. It's that of the like five or six episodes I'd seen, one of them is Charlie X, which I think. Yeah, is, you mentioned that you had seen one with a god, and I I very, realized a yes. very similar premise to this one. Which, he's not a god, I don't think. He's just a really, really powerful guy. But, he, I mean, I guess neither is this guy. But So, I, I think the difference is, is, so, yeah, there was always a lot of, but, like, Charlie X is really about, like, a kid who has these powers. It's yeah. it's very like the the um, the Twilight Zone episode that, um, I, I forget, it's a, I, I think, think it's called, I remember it's a, the Simpsons parody of it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's called It's a Good Life. Joe Dante directed the Twilight Zone uh, version movie where it's like yeah. this powerful kid that basically is controlling a town, but because he's a kid, he people the like enter the town. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's kind of, like, unassuming uh, from that perspective. And, like, that's kind of what Charlie X is. Like, he, everyone yeah. knows he's a kid, right? Yeah, this one, this one only becomes apparent that it's a sim- similar premise at the end. Like, once, yeah, it's like a twist. Like, oh, this isn't this is like a teenage God. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's fun to play with the idea that yeah. well, because because I think um, the Judeo-Christian version of God is uh, has evolved to be over the centuries. Um, uh, omnipotent, omniscient, you know, there's any suffering that you have is just part of the plan, yada, yada. The, his power is endless. His knowledge is endless. Um, but his mercy is endless. Uh, I feel like Star Trek and a lot of these other shows get more interested and it's kind of almost more dramatically compelling to have characters who are more like the Greek and Roman gods. They have flaws, they get angry, they make mistakes, they sin, they... Yeah, they, they don't know everything. I they think don't know they... everything, but they, they have a lot of power, but they don't necessarily use it the way they're supposed to all the time. So I think that's why the writers got so attracted to this, got this idea of, you know, people with ultimate power, but they do have gaps. Yeah, and um, and again, like so, as a as a big continuity nerd, um, as a as a kid, and I I talked about this in various shows that we've done too. Like, I was always attracted to serialized storytelling, um, just because a I wasn't a comic reader, so that wasn't something that was always offered to me, and then also, um, like the 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 television I was consuming as a young kid, just it was never serialized, right, like. That what happens on DuckTales or Saved by the Bell rarely goes to, like, one episode to the other, right? Even adult TV shows, for the most part, were not all that serialized. And so, like... Actually, we were trained to hate that stuff because remember when you would be watching, like, a random Boy Meets World and it would say to be continued and then they would just play an entirely unrelated episode next or at a different show? You would be like, how the fuck do I know what happens to Corey? Yeah. It was like, yeah the amount of like trained to hate hate continuations. <laughs> yeah, even for two parts, like because when you're a kid too, you don't even know when the show's necessarily on. Sometimes or like you can't always plan to be home, and then like if you miss it, who knows when you'll ever see it again. But I really liked it. So there's like a TV show that I was obsessed with that was on at like six in the morning called Exo Squad, which is like a I don't know if anyone remembers it, but it was like a, a fully just serialized kids show. Like, and I, I started watching it somewhere in the middle and then like, but picked up that every week it was, I called it every week it was to be continued because I didn't know what the concept of serialization was. So as a kid, like finding out that there's like an episode of the original series uh, that features essentially like a Q type character, which is so like, was part of my favorite next generation episodes. And then also I eventually, they rate, so the Star Trek novels, unlike um, Star Wars were non-canon, but they, but they had a lot of them and I read a ton of them Um, and they have an episode featuring, or not an episode, a a book uh, featuring Trelane and the character from the next generation. And you find out blah, 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 that like he, like, the character from the next generation was the dad that uh. came and stuff like that. So like, uh, so I was like obsessed with finding this episode, which was a lot harder to do yeah. in the early nineties. Uh, I found it at a, like a rent. Oh no, actually a family friend had done one of those, like pay 30 bucks of VHS for a time life. And it's one episode per thing. <laughs> yeah. And they had done that with the, uh, the original series and then stopped at like episode 22, probably because it cost them a fucking fortune for <laughs> one episode of VHS. But this is episode like 17. So they had it. And I was like overjoyed because oh, I'd nice. read about it. Um, well, and I think also, like, back then, 
there was less concern with amongst TV writers of repeating themselves because yeah, they're like they the concept of home video was nothing like there was no reason to think anyone would ever own this or be able to watch it on on you know demand yeah so like it, it almost made sense to repeat yourself to a degree because then someone who didn't get to see that first episode might want to you know you could explore similar themes and they don't yeah i don't know i just it's interesting when you think about how things something as simple as home video completely changed the way television writers write and yeah. now streaming is doing the same thing so when we first started this we talked about like that star trek episodes tend to fall into one of three categories which is like from a from a huge ten thousand foot view they're either like um morality plays they're like crew bonding or something like where the, the crew is some building their relationships or just a straight up like science fiction adventure thing. Yeah. And I think this introduces um, a, a kind of a mini genre that splits off from one of those, which is some malevolent, powerful enemy who just wants to have fun. Yeah. And the crew is not having it. <laughs> like, this is repeated so often, not just in like the godlike Q characters, but like some uh, some eccentric inventor kidnaps Data, the robot, and like he's my toy now, and everyone's just like, "Stop it, knock it off!" And it, <laughs> in some ways, it really—I always think it's funny because, like, when you think of these characters outside of that, a lot of times there's these comedy moments, and they seem like they're having fun. And I think Star Trek liked that idea of these mischievous trickster gods or yeah. powerful beings that like to fuck with the crew, but like and. A lot of the comedy comes from how much of a scold the crews become. Yeah. Like, all of a sudden, they are fucking not interested in investigating what this life form is. They're that was just the like, problem with it. Like, yeah. act one, scene one, Kirk is... Not act one, scene one. But the first time they land in the, the, the room, Kirk isn't even, like, playing cute with them. He's just no. like... He's, he's not even like, haha. What is going go. on? He's like, you will get me out of here. Yeah. And what's funny is that that reaction goes across every version of this story that they tell from the original <laughs> series to the next generation to deep space night like they again they star trek repeats these like mini ideas in different contexts a lot and every fucking time when something like this comes up no matter what crew it is they're just like everybody knock it off they're like they <laughs> they, they become john cleese from monty python like this is too silly stop it and they and they this isn't hour-long episode whatever 50 minutes like there was time to have a fun first act where you not even a first act a first half of a first act where uh they they uh they're conjuring up random shit or like uh they're explaining different concepts and having conversations about history and how it actually went down or whatever like yeah instead they immediately start treating him like a threat and he's like immediately kirk encourages uh not kirk to uh, phase, um, phase uh, uh, Trelane, yeah, and, and uh, it's kind of used as an excuse so we get to see Trelane's powers, yes, but it's also like it, it it's it set in really quickly. I'm like, could they have talked their way out of this? Well, and one thing that's fun is that like Picard is kind of a grump. He's a lovable grump, but like he he treats himself less as like a member of the crew, and like I am the captain, I am the boss, right? So. When Picard or even Cisco, who's like, I'm a man who's lost everything on the outskirts, like when they Cisco's from Deep Space Nine, in case you guys didn't know, 
<laughs> I realized what what the, show the, we're doing. The thong um, song singer Cisco. Yes, he wanted to see that thong, 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 thong. He didn't have any time for games. Um, but like, at least from a character perspective, it makes a sense that they are just not having this. Like, we get it, you're all powerful. And one of the fun things they do is that other members of the crew on those series who uh, their personality is a little more like, hey, I want to, what is going on here, tend to kind of counterbalance Picard's just, I've had enough of this attitude. I think it, it's weirder for, for this episode because, like, Kirk seems like the type of person who would be a little more curious with this person who's somewhat playful and like Spock too would have a little bit more of a scientific curiosity and McCoy would be the scold. It's kind of their whole dynamic to begin with. And so for Kirk to just be like, not interested is, is a little out of character. To, to be fair, Kirk was like kidnapped and frozen. Like, right off the bat. Yeah, but it's not the first time that <laughs> shit like that's happened and he's been, like, sure. rolled with the punches a little bit. Like, he'll be like, oh, yeah, I gotta fight the alien for winning of the three brains? Great. Like, I'm gonna fight it real good for you. Do you think the holodeck made him cold to any fun he could have here? He's just like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, fuck Peter, 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 go play a liar. Peter, Peter, Peter. They hadn't what? invented the holodeck yet. That's Listen, I don't know anything time. about the holodeck except for what you've told me, okay? They, this well, they fault. don't. They don't have it, Peter. This is your fault. I don't know what the holodeck is. <laughs> well, we'll um, get so there. I think it's a. I think it's a, a back like patio a t- on the Enterprise where they show each other the holographic oh. cards. Oh, from I, I. That's in generations. I think they're on that pirate ship. It basically is a thing that can like. It's like the new version of their entertainment where they can just summon anything and like be in this room that projects. Yeah. Uh, it's like it's like actual like full VR and stuff. Yeah, like that. okay, I remember that from Generations, yeah. and that introduces a whole new uh, subgenre of, of of Next Generation and and for and all the other series where like holodeck breaks down a little. <laughs> we're trapped. <laughs> like, in, they'll we're be trapped like playing a baseball game and the bats try to kill them because the safety protocols were overridden through yeah, an ion storm. I should I should also make clear that I watched I've watched Futurama through like a dozen or more times. So a lot of like terms and concepts I'm very familiar with just from not future. not from Star Trek cuz they they pretty much examined every Star Trek trope just with the Futurama crew. Well, I'm skipping yeah. ahead. I'm skipping ahead a little to the movie, but I forgot that like there's that there's that uh, where no man has gone before episode of Futurama where they have most of the cast on it and kind of yeah. do a Star Trek episode. And I there's that Ohura fan dance. I fucking forgot it was, like, taken directly from a movie. Uh, I thought it was, like, a dumb joke about how sometimes they sexualize Uhura. Uh, so, yeah, watching Star Trek V was like, oh, shit, I do not remember this at all. What the fuck? What the Your fuck brain has this? blotted it out. Apparently, that was a joke that was pitched in a producer meeting, and then the producers were like, yeah, sounds great. <laughs> Fan dance. Uh, yeah. Make it uh, sexy. So yeah, I uh, but yeah, I really I really like this episode because um, I, I I think it is funny how the the how the playfulness and the sinisterness kind of uh, bounce back and forth uh, with with Trelane, and he's not just um, uh, grunting, you know, how the Klingons were in seasons one and two, like just sort of these like angry, very like animalistic like creatures like they didn't have much much complexity to him uh this guy is like as a villain actually fun because like he's unpredictable 
Um, but I would say that as an episode that as an episode that's a, a exploration of the concept or uh, an exploration of sovereignty, like why, why, like Trelane doesn't understand why he can't treat living things like his little playthings, like why they can't be yeah. pets. Um, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that successful at that. I think that it, it's actually rather shallow on that front. Um, yeah, be, because it. They try and have the conversation in the first act. There's no time for it because it's just all antagonism. <clears throat> no time for conversation. Then in Act Three, there's a sort of uh, you know a trial that lasts all of three seconds where there was a chance to have this conversation. Uh, and then the parents at the end that are scolding Trelane uh, don't really they don't really have the conversation. They just more say like what you did was bad. Like, it, and it doesn't mean it's not an entertaining hour of TV. But I, I think it um, as as a Star Trek episode, I could have used more of that that philo- philosophizing. You know. It, it it's not that deep from an allegorical standpoint of like that kind of message episode that Star Trek can be really good at. One one thing I like the the thing I actually like most about it, separating like the the kid, how much I like the continuity component of it, or whether it's linked to the next generation. It's kind of already one thing that's that's always amazing about Star Trek is the way this first season of Star Trek is so fucking good. Uh, we haven't watched any season three episodes, Peter, and that's because it, it does kind of get a little rough in season three. But season one and then to some extent season two are just so goddamn good. And I like that this episode is already playing with a trope that it happens in many Star Trek episodes and, and kind of making a joke out of it. And that is like a lot of Star Trek episodes are this idea of we're faced with an unstoppable force or a seemingly unstoppable force. How are we going to stop it? And Kirk or Picard or any of these guys, they they figure they're smart. They use their cunning and they figure out this guy's not all powerful. It's the mirror. And lo and behold, they they blow up the mirror and Trelane gets mad. You've ruined my fun. They beam up and get out of there. That's like the end of a Star Trek episode, right? Like they were faced with someone malevolent. Kirk used his cunning to outwit the villain. And instead, in this episode, it already kind of uh, flips that on its head, where actually, who knows what the fuck was going on with the mirror, but yeah, he actually has godlike powers. Uh, you've done nothing to solve it. Um, and I like that as like almost a already kind of playing with the tropes that it's creating in such a short time frame. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's just, you know, in 50, it, if I'm going to spend 50 minutes, I either prefer it to be like... Um the really twisty turny, which I think it is, um, or to uh, be very thought provoking um, and philosophical. And I think that it's, it, it fails on the latter, but it's, it's fun as a twisty turny little story. I like that they managed to get a most dangerous game scenario into Star Trek. Um, considering yeah. that like scenario is, is, I don't, that scenario doesn't seem to make sense in like a post scarcity utopia. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I like the idea that it's, you know, ready or not, or the purge movies or cheap thrills or hard target, like these sort of like rich people hunting people who are, you know, weaker than them and getting to have that sort of those conversations about class and such. Yeah. Are, are, are DeSalle and Jaeger actual, like, are they just one-off characters? Did they... I'm not even sure who you're talking about. Those so yeah. those other two guys that go down to the planet with bones. Yeah, no, they are. Um, and you can tell that they weren't going to die because they weren't wearing a red shirt. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed that and I was like, are they about to kill a yellow shirt? 
<laughs> I didn't remember because I haven't seen this for a long time. Um, and I'm like, oh, weird. First season, I guess. Maybe they're going to kill, a, yeah, like you said, like a yellow shirt guy. But nope, they're fine. Uh, I guess there's a reason that the the, the parody version existed. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I think uh, I think that kind of wraps up our Squire of Gothos intro. Are you guys ready to dig into the bear desert meat of this episode? Yeah. Uh, and talk about... Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Yes. Yep. Uh, generally considered the worst Star Trek movie of the original series. I sure um, hope this is the bottom. This is not the bottom of Star Trek movies. This is the bottom of the original series movies. I will say, we'll talk about my history and your history. Well, your history is never having seen this. And Zach's history and why Zach Oh, you did literally, me. Thanks. Yeah, Zach literally uh, jumped at the chance to watch it uh, and talk about it on the show. Uh, right up until the point that he had to do it. In which case, he, he wanted out as quickly as possible. But we'll get into that. Uh, we actually probably won't get into that. Uh, but uh, quickly, the plot of Star Trek V, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's subtitled The Final Frontier. It starts kind of a few weeks after Star Trek IV ended. So Star Trek IV ended with uh, Kirk getting demoted to captain um, and being given the Enterprise A, 1701-A. They, they, the previous Enterprise blew up in Star Trek III. They flew around to Star Trek Four in a Klingon bird of prey, and the end of that was kind of triumphant for him, because even though he got in trouble, he got what he wanted, which was his captain's chair back. So this movie opens with them uh, doing the repairs or final checks to get the Enterprise A ready for their mission, um, while they kind of take uh, some of the other crew members take a shore leave. So Kirk and Spock and McCoy are camping at uh, Yosemite. Uh, doing a free solo on El Capitan. And that's actually like the first half hour of the movie is a cross between them getting the Enterprise ready, people on vacation, and then what's going on on, uh, what's the name of the planet? Nimbus 3, which is basically this mysterious Vulcan shows up, says that he's found um, the path to enlightenment and starts kind of taking over this like, Almost like embassy in the middle of nowhere with uh, human representatives, Klingon representatives, and Vulcan representatives. Eventually, they get the word that, hey, this, this embassy has been taken over. Uh, so Kirk and the crew board up the Enterprise, which still has a few bugs they got to work out, as always. Because um, I don't know if you guys get it. The ship is like all of them. It's old and falling apart. I don't know if you guys get it. It's a very subtle metaphor that's played through all five of the movies so far. So that actually makes no sense because it's new. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And there's it's parts new of it that are specifically new, like the prison. They talk about the prison being, like, completely new. But the whole the ship brig. is new, because they built it at the end of, like, it hasn't gone on its maiden voyage yet. Yeah. But they're like, ah, everything's broken. <laughs> like, <laughs> it all fucking sucks. So anyway, so they, uh, so Spock's like, hmm, I've heard of this Cybok character before. So let's go check it out. So they go... They can construct an extremely convoluted plan to break into the prison that... Oh, so the whole thing of this movie is, like, the transporters aren't working yet, which is, like, 
a plot device they have to throw out there because so they can do a bunch of dumb shit, <laughs> um, which is so like it's so frustrating because like Star Trek has been able to figure out how to utilize the transporters and still like not have to use them as like oh we got those transporters but it's like the writers of this movie were like those people that go every Seinfeld episode with a cell phone would be solved and it's like well they might (laughs) just think of new things to do Uh, at the time people didn't have them as commonly but the writers like probably kept going to writing meetings like got a great idea for some dramatic stuff and and then some writers like yeah, but the transporters would solve that. And they're like, ah, break the fucking transporters. You told me that every day this week with all my you, goddamn plot ideas. That's, and the transporters are broken. They're out of the you're game. You're right, though. You're right, though. The, sh- the, the show has so far for me been pretty good about being like, these are the tools in the tool chest. We have to figure out a good reason why they can't use them. Or, you know, you think they're not going to use them and then they find a way. Um, w- this is this is a pretty traditional sci-fi or magical movie or fantasy movie kind of thing where it's like, uh, oh, uh, in the last movie, we literally gave Harry Potter a time-traveling device. Uh, we gotta, like, <laughs> fucking break that thing. Uh, yeah, well, and this one, too, like, the Transporters are such a part of Star Trek, and it's not like they're, like, on this one planet we can't beam down. They use the fact that the Transporters don't work, like, eight goddamn times, and it's, <laughs> it's like, no. At best in Star Trek, there's interference from a planet and we can't get a signal. You can use the transporter thing once. They build a whole movie on, like, what is Star Trek but without transporters. Anyway. Um, it's so like if they- James Bond's gun kept getting damaged and you're like, bro, just clean the gun. <laughs> yeah. What if James Bond but there's no such thing as cars anymore? <laughs> uh. So anyway, so they they basically infiltrate the base in a shuttlecraft while Chekhov saying some stuff about... About how he's the captain. It's a big, like, convolute thing. They bring him to the base, but end up getting, like, captured by Cybok. Uh, and he boards the Enterprise on the shuttlecraft with his with his uh, his cult that he's assembled. Uh, you also find out that all these kidnapped people are on his side because he's taken away their pain by making them confront past pain. And the idea is that without their pain, they're now these happy, shiny people that are now uh, cultists. Hands. Yeah, uh, the cultists of him. So it's on the Enterprise when uh, Kirk gets beat up by Cybok and and Spock has a chance to kill him and he doesn't. That uh, Spock finally reveals, well, I can't kill him. He's my half brother. Uh, but he's not going to join him. So they all go in the brig, which uh, that this this moment has a lot of little funny moments. So we'll probably drill down to more. But eventually they get uh, broken out of the brig by Scotty, who's been hiding in the ship. Then they go on a big escape attempt but then still get end up getting captured where cybok is like hey my whole thing right now is that i've found the garden of eden the place of creation god's been talking to me and i'm gonna go visit him in the center of the universe and everyone's like holy shit can't go in the center of the universe super weird and he's like watch me and then he flies through the center of the universe really pretty with no obstacles whatsoever i'm surprised someone hasn't tried it you figure Um, there'd be one of the races that are like borderline borderline suicidal in their recklessness like would uh would be like nah i'm just gonna go check it out i mean the ship doesn't even fucking shake like they're just like (laughs) oh we're here maybe they're the only ones that uh well, you get we're to allowed to go. Yeah, maybe the only so anyways, that we're allowed to come back. Like maybe the the what happens in the other end defeated them. The thing you haven't gotten to because I'm being rude. Go on. No, it's fine. Uh, you're not being rude. It's a it's a podcast with co-hosts. So uh, anyway, so they get to the plan and they're like, we're, and then Kirk is kind of like, yeah, all right. I mean, we're here. Let's go check it out. Um, <laughs> I mean, while we're here, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you have kidnapped my crew, hypnotized a lot of them. 
Um, but I yeah. just came into this strip club to use the ATM, but I guess why I'm here. Why I'm here? I don't want to be rude for the performers. You wouldn't leave in the middle of a Broadway show. Um, but uh, yeah, so they walk around eventually uh, this like hologram face, this giant face appears that looks like kind of the Judeo-Christian idea of what God looks like, you know, uh, kind of cross between Santa Claus and Gandalf a little bit. And he's like, um, oh, great, you've heard my message. Uh, and everyone is kind of pretty in awe at first until he's like, ooh, Starship, never heard of that. That sounds great. Why don't you get that Starship right here and we can get out of here. And then Kirk says the now famous line, what does God need with a Starship? And they realize, and he kind of reveals himself as not so much God, but a powerful alien being who's been trapped on a planet. And that's like the the whole center of the universe is a prison to keep him in. And he's got kind of got one trick up his sleeves, which is lightning eyes. So there's a lot of lightning eyes. Cybok dies. Uh, they eventually get the transporters working. Or no, they don't get the transporters working. Uh, this whole time there's been a Klingon ship that's been pursuing them. Uh, the Klingon ambassador convinces the Klingon ship to like help him out. Uh, and so the Klingon ship appears and actually a really good shot where he thinks that he's finally going to get killed by the Klingons. He gets beamed out of safety. Everyone goes away happy and then they kind of hang out. Good times. And that is Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Uh, I saw this uh, really quickly uh, in like I was uh, I'd seen the motion picture. I'd seen Star Trek Six, and then was finally like going in order and watching two, three, four and five. I actually have a very distinctive memory of getting mono and then uh, renting all these movies. Or it was either mono or pneumonia. I had both, but I don't remember which one. Probably uh, pneumonia, because there's no way you got the kissing disease. <laughs> oh, but I licked a lot of stuff, Peter. Seventh grade, I'm like, <laughs> is this kissing? Um, I actually had like three students get mono while I was a teacher. Like different at different periods of time. I mean, people can just like share a drink too. Yeah, it's it's really it's more common oh, no, than I, I, I thought. I was just making fun of Aaron. Oh and, no, I know. But to be clear, I got it from kissing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I shared no can, drinks. Gross. It's super contagious, right? Like you can. Oh, yeah. You're supposed to. You're supposed to like not use other, drink out of other people's like. Uh, I'm supposed to do any, even after yeah. it's been through the the dishwasher. Like, yeah, it's just it's all saliva. So, anyways. But so I finally like uh, my I remember my dad went and was like, what do you want to watch? And he re- went to like a video rental store and I'm like, Star Trek 2, Star Trek 3, Star Trek 4, Star Trek 5. Uh, and then any of these episodes that you can find there. And he very, very nicely went and did all that. And I uh, remember the thing is about like being that age. And I probably was like 11 or 12. Like the name Star Trek The Final Frontier like sounds like a really fucking good name for a movie. And I like just ex- I didn't quite understand that like there could be a Star Trek movie that was bad. So I wasn't a big fan of it. I actually am not sure if I ever watched it again that I can remember. Maybe I like started it when I bought all the DVDs in college when they came out, but I don't have any clear memories of watching it behind that one time. So this a lot of this like besides the god part and besides some of the uh Cybox stuff and like the the Yosemite stuff, some of this felt kind of new to me. And I will say it held up. It didn't hold. Hold up is not the right word. But I got a lot more enjoyment out of this than I was expecting. Like it has. It's super dumb and super insane. It is like made by someone who doesn't seem to understand Star Trek. But it's like it is the Spock, McCoy, and Kirk stuff is still fun. 
some of the special effects, while not as good as previous Star Trek movies, are still really fun in that, like, 80s practical effects, digital mat type stuff. Unlike Insurrection and Nemesis, which are just bad movies and bad Star Trek movies, I guess that now, my, my impression of this one is that it is the fun, bad, slash good Star Trek movie that doesn't approach, like, the the highs uh, that we've seen before, but in some ways it's just, like, it's kind of a zippy, dumb watch, and, like, it's, I don't know, like, it's not unenjoyable, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Zach, you've seen this before, let's give your impressions, and then Peter, first-time watcher, the whole person that the show is built on, interested Long to hear listening. your general thoughts. I, my first Star Trek anything was that episode of it, Next Generation in middle school, and then when the J.J. Abrams second movie, when J.J. Abrams second movie came out, I I watched the first one, you know, because I'm like, oh, it looks interesting. I'll watch the first one because I didn't catch it when it came out in theaters. And then I liked it. So I watched the second one and I actually didn't, I didn't hate Into Darkness at the time. It kind of soured over time for me, but. And then I didn't watch anything for a while. And then when Leonard Nimoy died, I said, I really should check these out. Because I've always like liked Leonard Nimoy just as a presence. Like in The Simpsons. Yeah, Three in... Men and a Little uh, Baby. <laughs> yeah. Like every, t- movie. every time I see him, yeah, like in in pop culture, I'm like, I like this guy. He's great. So I'm like, I, I should probably watch some Star Trek. And... Committing to the movies was an easier thing than committing to like the series. Also cheaper, because like they were just they had just released the the series on Blu-ray, so it's still very expensive. Yeah, and streaming was like still not really like something I had. I had it was there, but I didn't have a ton of access to it myself. And so I I went and bought the Blu-ray of one, and then they had a box set of two, three, four. For some reason. Because it's like a mini trilogy in there. Yeah, and that's actually how it's packaged. It's like the 234 yeah. trilogy. So I watched those, and I'm like, I really like these movies. And so then I went and found 5 and 6. I didn't really talk to anyone about Star Trek at the time. So I didn't know what the kind of deal was with what are the good ones, what are the bad ones. And I didn't really like know that this one was the bad one. <laughs> Like, it doesn't stick out to me as a, as a particularly bad movie compared to the others. I also, like, didn't... I also found out later that one is not particularly well-liked, and I really liked one. Um, uh, yeah, I had to find out uh, while we were recording our episode on it that it had some backlash. Uh, yeah. I, I loved it when I watched I, it for the show. I, I really like all six of the first Star Trek movies to some extent. I will say this is my least favorite of them. Like, I get why it's... I get that it is not as good as the others. But, like, for a lot of the reasons Aaron says, like, I don't think it's, like, a shoddily made movie. Like, compared to other science fiction films around that time, I mean, it's not, like... It's not, like, the the pinnacle. But it's also, like... It's, it's good. Like, it doesn't look... It doesn't look significantly worse than the other films in the original series of Star Trek films. Uh, it doesn't particularly strike me as like half-assed. I think it's, it does have a lot of like weird, like the, the, the transporter thing I think is like, yeah, okay. It's kind of a cheat. 
Um, and, well, and, and I want to talk a little bit about the history of how this movie came to be after we get some initial impressions. Oh, yeah. So, it's insane, uh, but... but Yeah, but, like, it doesn't... Like, the, the plot's a little convoluted, but I kind of like the whole, like, idea that Zydok creates, like, a like a diplomatic crisis for the sole purpose of stealing the enterprise. That's kind of, I don't know. Is that just a whole kind of conceit? I like, I also like the, it feels very Metal Gear Solid. Like I created (laughs) this, I created this like international crisis about oil to steal Metal Gear. (laughs) And I also, I also like that the Klingon, like, like the threat of that Klingon, who wants just like to get revenge, like just to kind of not even revenge. He just like wants to kill Kirk because that would make him badass. Like, yeah. I like, I like he that wants to fuck around shooting stuff. I like that. That's just kind of there in the background. Like they just keep cutting to him. Like we're going to get him now. <laughs> and like, and then it's like it Smokey co- and the bandit. With yeah. The and sheriff. then, and then when you, and, and like no one else even is like for a lot of the movie, I feel like they're not even aware that he's after them. Like, and it ultimately doesn't matter. Yeah, and then in the end, he's just like, "All right, I'm not gonna hurt you." <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I think it's things. I do have like a lot of like. I give a lot of leeway to anything that entertains me. Like basically, if I'm if I'm if I if if, if I'm not like left like angry by 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 the thing by dumb things the movie does, I don't hold it against the movie. And so where it does like dumb things. Or weird things that don't make a ton of sense. It, there's nothing about it that like leaves me like feeling unfulfilled or like I didn't get you know it was or like it was a waste of my time. So I still enjoy it for that reason. I I like it more than either Generations or First Contact, even though I still like those to some extent. So it's not my least favorite Star Trek movie, and I probably like it more than End of Darkness. I basically say it's my fourth least favorite, but I also. The other three I would give negative overall ratings. Like, <laughs> this one I gave on Letterboxd, like, three and a half stars. Yeah. Anyways, Peter, the main event, the person we're all here for today, wedding part two. <laughs> what, what'd you think of this one? See, it sounds like you didn't like it. Uh, no, I didn't like it, but uh, I did like a lot of it, so this is not going to be a slam fest. Um, it's no, it's in no way close to Into Darkness for me, which was I thought was like a loathsome film. Like it, yeah. it actively enraged me. Um, this I just think is uh, silly and incompetent in many ways. And to take a step back, um, I feel like when you're learning about what a director does. You and your there's some obvious examples of auteurs like Stanley Kubrick or whatever, where like every aspect of the movie shows their distinctive style, the way that their dialogue flows, the way they like their performances, the way the uh, the camera is placed, the way they do their framing. Like there's like that auteur sort of vision bleeds through. And like sometimes when I'm watching, you're watching like a lot of other movies. It's it's actually hard to tell what the directors the director is responsible for, um, and what the director is not responsible for. And I kind of want to lead this into how the movie was made because it had a crazy story. But I directly hold William Shatner and the script responsible for the problems of this movie because it's not just that there it's full of like really bad comedy beats that don't land and like actively make me cringe it's the way that he directed his actors including himself (laughs) um and the way he directed himself uh to react to that comedy 
uh, is just so tone deaf. And the movie never quite finds out whether it's um, a more lighthearted Star Wars adventure, if it's a, a this uh, philosophical, um, tr- you know, journey through space to find God, if it's a classic Star Wars, ep- Star Trek episode that's sort of a balance between those two. And, you know, there's moments of brevity, but it is a serious thing. It, it, it just ends up being goofy, goofy comedy moment and then a scene that they take they expect you to take very seriously. And I think the actors are 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 just all over the place. Like he never found a, a center bearing for the actors and the performances. And uh, it does show me though the two things that I think the strength of this this uh, series are um, the history that it's standing on and the actors that they cast for one aspect. Um, it's standing on history of a show that I love with actors that I love, and I, I love any excuse to see. To see Doc uh, just just uh, being a sarcastic asshole, um, and I even think Kirk is fun in this. Like I think he, I think Shatner, his his uh, ability to perform got worse and worse as these movies went on. But yeah. um, and then the other half, just that wait I till like, the next one though. Oh, <laughs> and the other God, half but... that I really like is um, I wanted to highlight. I think the strength of this movie is the photography. I think it's actually a really well shot movie. Yeah. And it, it, it exudes a competence that the rest of the movie does not have. It's shot by this guy, Andrew Laszlo, um, who um, he did The Warriors, he did Streets of Fire, he did Southern Comfort, which are, you know, all like Walter Hill movies that look really great. Um, he also shot Newsies, which for all Newsies problems, it's a great looking movie. Um, and he, uh, he also shot like inner space. So he's kind of like a, he's, he's like a genre dude who, um, I don't think anyone really talks about, but he, um, he lent a, a air of confidence and competence to this movie that gave me a lot more, um, faith and trust in the movie that I don't think that the director was. I don't know who I, I don't know who gets the credit for it, but the shot, like the whole opening sequence introducing Kirk, is like a really great like visual sequence because I I know it's obviously part of it is just to hide the fact that it's a stunt double, but yeah. like you 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 never really see Kirk's face until a really great shot that kind of does this like uh like turn like pivot around him. So you keep seeing his like hands and his feet, and it's just this great like oh this is, you know it's just you seeing him bit by bit until like this majestic sweep into his face. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, well, and also like even though even though like the assault on the base is like in a story context for a reason that there there is just dumb as fuck. <laughs> it still looks awesome yeah. like the sets look good the debt the, all the desert scenes look really good the it's desert like stuff gave me like a dune or a mad yeah vibe. yeah like so watching this watching this on a big screen last night i was like oh man like i need to watch more of star trek movies down here even though this is like kind of the joke what it felt like a little scene from like fucking assault on nimbus precinct 13 or something yeah. like it, <laughs> it was really like well done and it is it is like it's just a well-shot movie. Like, I really... It like, is. I, I was struck by how much confidence it gained me in the movie. I also don't know who to give... I don't know if I can necessarily give the director or even the film credit for this. But, like, as to what you were saying, Peter, about how it, like, it just doesn't know what it is. Part of that kind of works for me because, like, 
while it is like about this like search for God, Psydoc's mm. like kind of uh like high minded, like emotionally like in touch, almost kind of new aginess is definitely contrasted with the just kind of hard scrabble uh salt of the earth qualities which all which Kirk uh Bones and Spock all kind of have their own version of yeah but is all kind of along like th- th- this movie is very much about those three and their bond with each other yeah and, and I that's a really good I think point to kind of circle back for a sec right yeah. because like how did this movie come to be? Like, why is why is this stuff like this? So, just just a little bit of history. So, Le- Leonard Nimoy directed three Star Trek three and Star Trek four. The reason they were able to get him back for Star Trek three was because he had a really good experience making Star Trek two with Nicholas Meyer, who returns to direct Star Trek six, um, and they let him direct uh, Star Trek three. That was a success. He got to do Star Trek four. When they were making Star Trek IV, um, the actual story goes that, like, Shatner was jealous of Nimoy, and I think that's an easy thing to say because Shatner is a very petty little man, <laughs> but... And he fought with everyone in the cast, right? Like, Yeah, and, like, almost everyone except Nimoy has had a bad relationship with him. Like, they ended up becoming, like, lifelong friends, and... Uh, and and so everyone would talk to Nimoy about Shatner, and he'd be like, "I'll talk to Bill." Like he was in in some ways like both the both a friend of Bill and the rest of the cast, but also like the ambassador to to William Shatner from the rest of the cast on stuff. So, but uh, but the official story and uh, is that basically Paramount didn't want to meet his salary requirements for Star Trek Four, and he said, "Fine, I will take a." what is essentially not a pay cut, but not the pay increase that I think I'm due Yeah, on the assumption that I get to, to, to direct Star Trek five. So, and he like the thing about William Shatner is that he is the worst in a lot of ways, but he's not someone who is not a workhorse. Yeah. Um, fast forward. Like he, he came up with a lot of days. He was actively involved in set design story and like all these things for this movie. And that came later on too. Like he, you know, the joke about like, he wrote those tech wars books. Like he <laughs> ended up like writing all these, like with, with ghostwriters to help him do this stuff. But like he was coming up with story ideas and dialogue. And then he started writing Star Trek novels with like, um, with other authors assisting him as well. And like, he was like very invested in the creative side in it. Now, most of his creative instincts are wrong, (laughs) but it's not that he like didn't, he wasn't like someone who's like, I'm do this as a rich, powerful man. Just give me the camera. Anyone can direct. Like he was like invested in making this his own. And I think he did, (laughs) but I think that's why it is what it is. So a little bit about it. So he, um, he wanted he was watching a lot of televangelists and thought they were terrible and thought what if and what if I make that the villain in this Star Trek movie that I get to direct. And then he thought that the the whole point would be this televangelist tries to find God and they find out they meet God and they find out that it's not God, it's Satan. And then Satan, like actual Satan, uh <laughs> drags down the crew to hell. <laughs> And Kirk needs to rescue them from hell. This is a hundred percent the story pitched by William Shatner for the making of Star Trek. So can you fucking imagine, like, <laughs> the, like, look, 
Satan's real in the Star Trek universe, and he takes the crew to hell. And old <laughs> old Captain Kirk himself has to save the crew from hell. So Paramount's like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> um, so eventually, with some rewriting, it eventually became like um, this version of God. And Cybok became more and more sympathetic. Like, he has uh, – it's dumb, but he has a re- redemption arc. He was a, originally a much more, like, kind of evil televangelist manipulating people as opposed to someone who's kind of been fooled himself. The yeah. other part is that Shatner had all these visions for, like, angels and demons – uh, representatives at the ending and all these special effects thing, and the budget kept getting cut. So he wanted um, to make Neon Genesis Evangelion. Essentially. <laughs> um, and he wanted to do it like that's part of where the mythos came from. Like, even when this was like a fake Garden of Eden, is that like there's angels and there's demons, and instead, like, stuff kept getting cut, which I think also gives to why, like, the God stuff is so disjointed, um, where they kept trying to lean into where it works. Where they had the money to do stuff and, like, he wanted it to be, like, over, like, two and a half hours. <laughs> and Paramount's, like, like a buck forty is good for a Star Trek movie, I think. <laughs> um, too bad he wasn't making movies in the late aughts because they would have they would have done a three three hour two part one. But uh, anyway, so his whole thing, though, throughout this movie was he wanted it to be Kirk saving the day alone, which is like the the classic Shatner, I'm selfish. <laughs> uh, so there's that scene in the movie where Nimoy and McCoy get like sucked into Cybox visions, but then they're like, no, we're staying. And that's it feels so weird because it's like, why would you show them this? And then they're just like, but we're not leaving. And that's because they were supposed to leave. And Nimoy and Kelly uh, fucking refused. They're like, no, we're not playing. We're not being like, you don't get to be the hero by yourself. And we, we also turn into like these bad guys. And they had enough influence to make him change the script. Yeah. So they left it all the stuff about them getting tempted, but then are just like, but not, but we're fine now. And so like, it is this weird disjointed mess. It actually had the number one opening of any Star Trek movie to that point. People were so psyched after four yeah. and then became the lowest grossing uh, <laughs> of the original Star Trek movies. Uh, this opened in the summer of 1989. And it was – this is true. That's when I was born. It was projected to do $200 million by insiders. Uh and instead, other movies you may have heard did really well. Stuff like Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, 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 Ghostbusters 2. Like, 1989 was a fucking huge summer, uh, summer blockbuster season. Like, almost the start of the modern blockbuster season. Yeah. And, um, and, and the, Star Trek Five was just these movies had opened during the Thanksgiving season. Yep. Um, which which uh, I think gave them more of a buffer room or gave them a different kind of audience. Uh, than... And they went back to that, too. Like, uh, Star Trek Six, and then on through, started opening again in, like, November. Yeah. I feel like that's a better thought for them. Like, yeah. uh, go see it with your family or whatever, as opposed to, like, middle of the summer, trying to keep up with all the summer blockbusters. One thing, yes. one thing about William Shatner is that you 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 you're not you're dead on that he is like the worst like as a person <laughs> and i've never liked him in anything else but the role of captain kirk but i love him as captain kirk yeah. i think he's actually i don't think he's ever given a bad performance as captain kirk that i've seen i mean i haven't seen every episode of the show so obviously uh feel free to correct me there but like in every movie He's even generations, which I like less than any other movie he's been in. 
as Kirk. I still think he's like really good as Kirk. I don't know if it's just the only role he's good at, but like something about that role like brings out something in him that like is able to cut past the all the very many things I find annoying and kind of odious about him to where like Yeah, we've talked about that in the show, like the the part where like he finds out his son dies in two. Um, I even think the part in this movie where the Klingon ship appears or the part where he's like, even though it's like a weird moment in this film yeah. and kind of self-serving because it's it's <laughs> yeah. the part where he's like, I need my pain. Like that has like an emotional resonance because yeah. we know what he's been through and it's a well-delivered line. And we're about to see like, I think, I think the apex of William Shatner's uh, acting in Star Trek Six, which is really some. Uh, I don't want to reveal anything for 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 Peter, but there's a part where he kind of gives a confession about how he's feeling about a situation. Um, that is truly like I, I think like some of the best acting in a Star Trek film across he, the board. He's, like he's really good. Like I, I it, it seems weird to say because he's kind of a joke. Like. Even to people who like him, he's kind of a joke. I mean, like, people, you know, the the William Shatner Star Trek impersonation is, like, one of the probably most well-known and well-traveled impersonations. You don't even have to have seen Star Trek to get it. Like, it's just one of those... Captain Kirk, the... It, it just, like, the that, that cadence, like, it's, it's, a, it's a huge cultural punchline. And then when you watch it, you're like, this 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 works really well. Like I don't understand it. Um. Yeah. I, I just I I can't really get behind. I can't really get behind Kirk. Um. In a lot of this stuff. Um. I can't get behind Kirk in the in this, for the past two or three movies as an actor. Um. Especially in this one, I feel like he needed to rein himself in because his comic sensibilities are so so dull. Like. He he can't hit a joke to save his life, and it's very painful to watch at times. And uh, but I don't think that that's like the worst part of the movie. I I mean I I think the primary problem with the movie is performances. Um, but I think he's matched nose to nose with uh the actor who plays Cybok um as the worst performance in the movie because Cybok Star Trek meets Tony Robbins. <laughs> I I okay I like the idea of it that like. The idea of a villain like this playing it, like, uh, I'm going to change your life. I'm making direct eye contact with you and having a legitimate power that the Klingons have exhibited or, you know, some version the Klingon, the, the um, pardon me, some uh, legitimate power that the Vulcans have exhibited or, you know, some version that the Vulcans have exhibited and getting to kind of inverse that power. I think that's actually a really cool plot point. Um, but I think that the, all the choices that the actor who plays Cybok make in pursuit of that sort of uh, televangelist, Tony Robbins in space kind of thing, um, just end up coming off like, um, it reminds me of, of uh, bad, like these bad Christian educational videos they would make us watch when <laughs> I was a kid. Like, uh, we, I was make I made a joke earlier that like your uh, your teacher made you uh, made you watch Star Trek when they were hungover, but I'm pretty sure this was my teacher just being like, ah, there's a VHS tape in the closet. This is what you guys are watching today. <laughs> um, 
but these these yeah these like performances of jesus that have absolutely no nuance and like don't make jesus as a person interesting which yeah. is like a pretty a pretty huge sin because like jesus is an interesting figure um like why would you not add any humanity to jesus yeah um <laughs> but instead it's just playing it off like you know i just i just really want to talk to you about your pain today like it's it's a uh, it's so obviously patterned on um false uh it's so obviously patterned on the sort of uh, a, a fake televangelist screed of uh christianity that it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me interesting interesting d- trivia about lawrence looking bill who plays psyduck Mm-hmm. He, he is the uncle of uh, Lana and Lily Wachowski. Oh, he's also cool. uh, isn't he the child of uh, Lucille and Desi Arnaz? <laughs> Lucille Paul and Desi Arnaz? Am I wrong? I, I have no idea. I do, I, gotta... I do not think that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I th- I didn't know. I thought how, you were how could, say that. How, how could he be? How could he be that old in 1989 if he's was born in the 50s? I don't know, man. He's. Born... <laughs> Uh, i'm looking up who he's connected to now the wachowskis (laughs) just just the chowskis i mean that would be insane if the wachowskis are married to actress lucy arnaz daughter of lucille ball and desi arnaz okay that makes some there we go okay so (laughs) yeah so yeah father-in-law mother-in-law there we go there we go that's where i that's what i read um that's that's true hollywood royalty right there yeah. Do you think that this movie had any influence on the Chowskis? No. Yeah, I think they're like, <laughs> what if we meet God? I think they but made God good is. movies, so I don't think this movie probably had much of an impact. <laughs> uh, there's probably, I think there's a hologram f- giant face at the end of Matrix Revolutions, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you, know, so. you know what I found? This is a weird, just random observation. Whenever they meet God and he's like cycling through faces and he's like, perhaps this one will s- satisfy you. The, the the face that he satisfied that he says the face that he settles on looks like the cowardly lion like Bert Lahr is the cowardly lion to me just the way like the curls even though are it's right here. ripping off it's riffing off of riffing off I should say of uh, Wizard of Oz uh, you know don't look behind the curtain scene. yeah that's what um, I thought like he looks like the cowardly lion <laughs> that doesn't look like God <laughs> when they first started showing all the faces of God I, I let out the loudest groan I've ever let out in my house I was like no no, no they didn't actually meet God did they and then eight seconds later all of my cynicism was rewarded I was like oh this guy's full of shit yeah I like that like I I do like the idea of again in Nobody a better buys movie. It. Well, actually, sorry. <laughs> well, everybody but uh, Kirk buys it. <laughs> yeah, but then the second, but the thing is that once Kirk is like, yeah, well, hold on, it's like, why do you need a starship? <laughs> Even Cybox, like, hey, stop shooting my friend with eye lasers. That sucks. <laughs> the god that I believe in wouldn't do that. Like, he's one of the few, like, literally, like, fundamentalist. Uh, religious obsessed people that devotes his entire life that once God does something he doesn't like is like, well, hold on a sec. This doesn't <laughs> seem right. We're like most fundamentalist people I know. If God would have shot laser eyeballs at his friend, they'd be like, I've always supported laser eyeballs. I've never said, <laughs> I bet most of my God stuff is about laser eyeball stuff, guys. <laughs> hey, like, man, never oh. meet your heroes. Yeah. 
There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people in heaven right now wandering around, going like, "God just won't ta- stop talking about his son. <laughs> he's just he's just a motor mouth. He keeps asking for a starship. Uh, <laughs> I oh. love when I love when Spock. All right, so Kirk asked for a starship with the, the typical Kirk sort of like. Hey, uh, what do you what do you need? What does God yeah. need with a starship? Yeah, he like asked him with the, the sort of like sarcasm. Uh, yeah. But I liked when Spock stands up because Spock doesn't know how to do sarcasm. Um, Spock st- stands up and he's like, he's like, what do you need with a starship? Like he's just angry immediately, yeah. and it reminds me of um, the sort of exchange between the two of them asking that question. It reminds me of in uh, the best line in Shape of Water when. Uh, <laughs> Oh, it's yeah. Like, I know you're talking about. We've talked about so many times. Russian, Bob. <laughs> I love that fucking line. That is the best. I, I would put that top five line deliveries of all time. Why were you speaking Russian, Bob? I fucking. That's so good. That's the same tone I hear. Why do you need a space, a starship, God? It's so. You're right, though. That's a good call up because Michael Shannon, The Shape of Water, the whole point is that he knew there was something suspicious. And he's proven right, and he gets to publicly dunk on him in, like, this very, like, ha, like, I'm not just going to say I knew it. I'm going to make you answer this obvious question. And you're right. Kirk does the exact same thing. But, again, like, I really do like the concept of, again, it's it's so poorly worked into the plot because (laughs) the God stuff comes up, like, 30 minutes to the end. Oh, that was his thing he was doing? It would be nice. But I get that it's, like, supposed to be, like, a switcheroo, like... Oh, he's like the whole diplomatic incident is completely irrelevant. (laughs) But like, it would be nice if they had seeded the plot a little more with the yeah we're going to find God, so that it's not like wait what like (laughs) well so that's that's actually how it originally was in the script, and then they decided to change it because they thought that well they thought that their big reveal was that they were searching for God, so they wanted to save that near the end where you know well-structured movie that would have been introduced very early on so you know what the fuck is going on i think on. you could i think you could even still do it as a reveal if you had like just given me any indication of what that that might be you know like a good a good twist like that i think i think there's like two kinds of good twists there's ones that like truly do come out of nowhere but they're so like they're so like recontextualizing that they actually like the film does become something different, like a psycho twist. Yeah. Like, holy shit, we just lost the lead of the movie. Yeah. But yeah, you know, this is not that. And, and then there's also the kind of twist like the prestige where like they have been telling you the entire time if you're really looking and you know what to look for. But it still does. It still comes out of nowhere in the sense that you do have to know what to look for. And this is neither of those. This is this is. Yeah. This, this is, is just like, oh, hey, this is a different movie now. <laughs> like, well, but like, and also like, I mean, the whole concept is really leaning more into like a uh, comic booky fantasy element. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it's like Star Trek isn't really great about like, they do have these. And that's why I wanted to talk about Squire of Gothos in reference to this. Like they do have these kind of like, it's that kind of Arthur C. Clarke quote that like, you know, you know, that magic and science are indistinguishable if you don't have the knowledge present. Like, and Star Trek kind of always presents its godlike characters as more, they have advanced. Yeah. Like, and in, and in, and in a universe like this, there are going to be those. So there are episodes with other godlike creatures where they're usually like, you're not fully like 
omniscient, omnipotent. Maybe you have a lot of power. We don't understand what the limitations of that power is, but there there's limitations that exist. So this idea of like they they're getting messages from God and or godlike figure and the kind of myths that have in some way like in start in the Star Trek universe have kind of been seen as myths. Like there's not Christians in the Star Trek universe, yeah. right? Like they they they've moved beyond that. So the idea of these long ago myths being like connected to some sort of like alien race that is then calling them and beckoning them for their own purposes, like good sci-fi setup could have been could have been done well. The twist is not that they're looking for God. The twist should have been that uh, you know, which happens twenty minutes after the first twist, that you know th- th- that God is just a malevolent alien force. What's interesting is uh, that you guys went no. So they essentially reuse this race of that they end up calling the Cyrithians, very Star Trek name, <laughs> um, and they basically retell a quasi version of this story where uh, in the Next Generation, where a member of the crew is an episode called the Nth Degree, where a member of the crew is touched by one of these species and is like and called forth to like meet him. Although you don't know that the mystery in that episode is uh, a probe. Uh, basically flashes in front of uh, one of the crew members and he becomes super smart and crazy and takes over the ship. And then eventually it's to like meet one of these, like a a good version of, again, the hologram head who is there to like study. And the idea, the idea it's it's again, where next generation like takes an idea and then does it way better, which is this idea of, this is a, a creature that's kind of stuck in the middle of the universe or close or in space. And he's an explorer too, but he brings people to him to meet new races as opposed to them who are going out and exploring the universe. So, like, really great idea. Same hologram head. Instead of a villain, he's just an explorer that they didn't understand. Yeah. Um, and I really like that. So, it's not that there's not promise here. It just, like everything, it's just so weirdly thrown together because of so many script rewrites and budgetary limitations. Yeah, yeah it, 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 I think uh, George Takei said it, that it, it feels like it's five movies stitched together, which is a common yeah. complaint about these kind of movies. And I actually love a lot of movies that feel like five movies stitched yeah. together. Um, but this is this one in particular, it feels like um, Shatner and the producers and all the power players got together. They all were very protective of this this movie and nobody could kill their darlings. Uh, yeah. Shatner wouldn't get rid of the Yosemite stuff, you know, Takai, Takai and, uh, and Nimoy wouldn't get rid of, you know, certain, um, Takai and Nimoy and, um, Kelly wouldn't get rid of, uh, certain character stuff. Shatner, as he was directing, refused to lean off the comedy. Like it just, it, it feels like a bunch of the producers uh, pro- clearly made decisions about how the script was supposed to flow. Uh, Roddenberry made his voice very heard uh, when he was putting this movie together. Yeah. He was kind of nixing everything. No, nope, no God. Yeah. What, no. What was, Actually, he was killing too many darlings. What was the um, last movie made during his lifetime? Um, I believe, six? I think he died right before the undiscovered country. Okay was released like he was around no no that no that can't be right because he had some thoughts about things that happened in the undiscovered country um it's definitely sometime during next gen's run maybe he maybe he died before it was theatrically released but saw it yeah no in 1991 so yeah the, the year that undiscovered country came out 
but yeah, that everyone kind of got their fingers in the pie, and I and I feel like Gene Roddenberry maybe uh, he killed too many darlings. I don't. He killed everyone else's darlings, but um, not enough of them. <laughs> um, but he uh, the the fact that this opens with this this Dune Messiah sort of like uh, cultist on the waist, and he's gathering up all these races, and you think he's like going to war, and then the movie flips that on its head, and he's not actually the villain. Like Aaron, you're right. Like that's a that's a really great structure for a story mm-hmm. um, if you if you play it right. Instead, uh, it just feels like the movie got to a certain point, and then like. Uh, they ran out of money for war budgets and they were like, well, I guess we could just go see God. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, I like that the movie doesn't end with a big battle scene. I like that the movie isn't about defeating a Klingon horde of, of you know, birds of prey. I like that it's not um, a film about uh, defeating some, you know, great evil, but it can't help but feel like in comparison to both the episode we watched today and the first movie where they meet a sort of God and, um, all of that, it just can't help but feel very paltry and small, but not small enough to be charming. Yeah. Yeah, this this is a weird era where, like, so Star Trek Into Darkness is a bad movie, but it's not a bad movie that is without, like, an epic level of scope and a level of, like, forced quality control as a big sequel to a Hollywood blockbuster, right? Like, yeah. the story's bad. It's it's a movie, and we'll talk more about it at some point in the near in the near ish future. Where I left the movie going four 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 and a half stars, great movie, and then by that afternoon, I was like, that movie was terrible because like it it has all the trappings of like a exciting action adventure movie. The idea of following up your most successful Star Trek movie with this mishmash garbage <laughs> is like. Not something that happens nowadays with a property that is, in, you know, this valuable and a budget that, you know, is relatively high. Like, this budget for this movie was $25 million. Unless it's, like it's $75 million. Unless it's Batman versus Superman. <laughs> yeah, but I think that, like, that's a bad movie because Zack Snyder <laughs> only knows how to give us style. That's true. But it's not a bad movie, like, isn't trying to hit certain story beats and, yeah. like, show us appropriate scope of, like epicness like the idea that also that feels they... like five movies stuck together and <laughs> they have to awkwardly jam them together and they're just like i don't know get the fucking blowtorch no it's a movie about them killing doomsday i don't know that's a movie about yeah. jesse eisenberg making someone drink piss i don't care make yeah. it stick uh yeah but it, it doesn't like quite strike this level of just general like even the story idea they had like that was the thing about and they, they did this later on too like the idea of following Star Trek First Contact, which is this big, epic, time-traveling, uh, warish movie against, like, the most powerful foe the and scariest enemy that the Enterprise are faced with. Yeah. I don't know. What if they go to a planet and get younger? <laughs> um, and, like, try not to – try to save the lives of, get this, 90 people. It's just a weird choice. Like, I- movies usually go bigger – Nowadays, they don't go like, I don't know, let's just toss off a little little freebie here. Yeah, you um, know, what's interesting is like, we a lot of people talk about, in, in like the current era, about the influence of TV on big franchises. You know, like people say, yeah. oh, like the MCU is more like a really big, huge season of television than it is like a conventional franchise. But I really feel like the opposite. Like, to me, 
like let's say the the first six Star Trek movies or the like the Godzilla films or Zatoichi those franchises to me feel more like TV and that like yeah you don't like if 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 one episode of The Sopranos is like the best I've ever seen so far or like you know just epic like everyone dies crazy shit happens that doesn't mean the next episode is even crazier the next episode could be the most low key episode yet yeah. And that's how that's how I feel like with Star Trek movies is like two, three and four are just like this escalating high in the Star Trek. And then like five is just like, all right, well, let's like like often a completely different direction. But that's something you don't really see in franchises much anymore to an extent like movies. There's a charm to that that five doesn't completely capitalize on. But it's why I don't dislike it to the extent so many people do is because it's kind of like charming and amusing to me that the next step of the from four is just another direction completely yeah and um i think that's a really good point because it does seem more like the mentality of like uh yeah we just really blew our load and budget on this like big episode of television like now it's bottle episode time (laughs) like uh now that they don't make bad blockbusters yeah they do and even like protective franchises like solos are really good example like they do everyone is kind of thinking like we need a movie movie worthy story to tell yeah for the most part and and like Star Trek just felt like, well, we got to make another one. Yeah, um, it, it has a smallness, which is weird because the last one was about them going to San Francisco and stealing a whale. <laughs> and time traveling, right? Like, yeah, but like mostly about them stealing a whale in like modern day San Francisco. Like, To be clear, they did not steal it. They Gracie and wanted to come. It's a whale heist <laughs> movie. It's it's an Ocean's Eleven movie it's a, where it's a if the money wanted a, to leave or it, else that the money would be destroyed. It's a whale break movie. It's a whale break. There we go. I Ooh, I, uh, I and I I liked that movie quite a bit. Um, that movie felt like it was perfectly modulating its size to me, where it was like, all right, well, um, we don't have quite the space that we were going to do before. I mean, what do you do after the last movie uh, in terms of like a big action movie? Why don't we make something that's both like philosophical and full of heart, but um, isn't, you know, uh, another big, uh, big, you know, action movie. We're not pushing to show you, you know, the expanse of the universe anymore. We're actually like delving down to the characters. And this is like, we're going to, we're going to, you know, expand out. It's going to take place in, in all sorts of vast locations and yada yada. But um, it's going to mostly uh, it's going to be mostly bad action sequences with kind of bad special effects. And uh, th- th- there's just there's kind of a there's kind of a rudderless quality to the whole yeah. thing that yeah. makes you feel like you're like, why did you make this big? I know, well, I know you feel like you feel like you made it big, but it, it just feels so it feels so small and not in an ambitious way, you know, where it's like, oh, you you didn't quite reach the stars, but you reached the moon. It, it feels like you're like watching. It feels almost like it, it's almost sad to me at a certain point where I'm like, it, it, it feels like they just kept getting budget chopped every hour. <laughs> Like, ah, quick, shoot, yeah. this, uh, shoot this scene before they take more of our money away. Well, and I don't want to go back and, like, um, actually from something you said a while ago, Peter, but it is interesting to note that, like, 
the reason why there's all this like forced comedy, I would actually argue some of it's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> I'll save that for like final little moments. Um, but um, that came from the studio. Marshmallows? Post Star Trek. Not that part. But um, <laughs> they came. That came from the studio post Star Trek Four, right? Star Trek Four is the most successful Star Trek movie to date. It's basically an a fish out of water. Comedy. Wait, is it really? Yeah. Even, well, at that point. Oh, okay. I'm like, I, I thought you meant like today. Now I'm like, even more than the new ones. Okay. Uh, I don't know about adjusted for inflation, but like yeah. it was like it's a it's a mammal out of water comedy. Uh, you get what I did there? Because yeah, whales are mammals. But anyway, I don't actually don't think it's I don't think it's rep has held up that way, which does make it surprising. Like, I feel like it's rep is actually that like among people that have seen it, it's that it's great. But like it sort of gets teased like, oh, the Star Trek movie where they have a whale. Uh, I think, yeah, a little bit like it's not Star Trek, Two. Like, if you don't know Star Trek, people talk about probably the Wrath of Khan with more hushed reverence than they do the Voyage Home. But like the studio kept trying to add in comedy and Shatner wanted to make this like big philosophical thing about religion and punching Satan in the face. So like those kind of like forced comedy bits um, are really like mandated by the studio against what Shatner wanted, which actually kind of matches like I read all those Shatner novels that he did post generations and post first contact. Tech war. Where he, no, not like the actual Star Trek. Oh, one. Oh. So like. So, like, he pitched a sequel to Generations where he came back and the studio said we're ready to move on <laughs> with the next generation cast. And he turned that into a novel that I fucking loved. And then he had follow-up novels to it. And the one thing I really liked about – like, I actually loved Shatner's Star Trek novels at a time when I was reading them uh, pretty regularly because he – all of his fucking stories were goddamn huge. Like, he didn't tell, like – and then they meet an alien world and there's some ethics to talk about. Like for a younger kid, it was like, and then the universe is under threat and all these people come. Like it was epic battles and cataclysmic stuff, which is not the case for the novels or Star Trek as a whole. He always wanted to tell these like massive stories. Yeah. And like you see that in the bones of Star Trek five. Where like he clearly wanted to tell a story about whether God exists and the and the bounds of hell, and then it like became this weird like one moment of God and Shatner yells at him. <laughs> but like his instincts are actually feel like they're less comedic and more like huge and epic, even if he's not Good always it. great at bringing those to life. Yeah, I mean that actually fits in. Um, what you were saying earlier about studio interference actually fits in uh, with what I was saying before because like. Uh, yeah, it just feels like this is compromised beast and everyone, yeah. nobody was willing to give up on their, what they thought the series was, um, and everyone fought for it, um, <laughs> yeah. and fought no, each you... other for it. So, yeah. I, I get it, like, you would think it was Shatner that wanted to add Shatner goofy bits, but it, um, so I, I get, I get where that's coming from, but you were 100% right that it's, like, a bunch of people, like, throwing their two cents in. I, I actually think we've we've given some short shrift to the comedy. Some of it is super forced. The row, row, row your boat scene is super forced. But I Both actually like the, the the stretch from when uh, Kirk is angry at Spock for not telling him it's his brother to their uh, prison breakout. I think it's very – has a lot of very, very funny moments. It's like a 10-minute stretch. Uh but, like, it works. Like, a lot of it doesn't work. Like, you're right. The jet boots, when he's like, oh, I miscalculated. Very dumb. But the whole, like, when he's like, 
uh, someone tested this prison, um, and what? Uh, and they were they were and he was one of the best people, and they were not able to break out. Spock says, and Kirk's like, "Did this person happen to have pointed ears and is quite is good at causing his friends trouble?" And Spock's like, "He did have pointed ears. <laughs> like that's really good." And Nimoy's really good at those Spock uh, moments. And I also really like this is the only movie which is so weird because Shatner directed it where. McCoy keeps taking Spock's side against Shatner, where he is like, you are being too hard on him. Don't, of course he's not going to kill his brother. And then later on, they kind of team up to give Kirk shit when they're in the jail, which is like nowhere else in Star Trek, period. It is always like Kirk at the center while McCoy and Nimoy fight. So the I love that like McCoy sees an element of like, sympathy and like oh he just cared about his brother and that in some ways endures mccoy to start like hey lay off him kirk i think those moments are really touching because ultimately as we've always said they are friends yeah like you know spock and mccoy even if they tend to be on one side of shatner it's their whole dynamic but also like it just it literally doesn't happen anywhere else it doesn't happen in any other movies it doesn't happen in the reboots like like McCoy deciding that 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 he's gonna team up against Shatner is so good, and I love it, and I wish they would have done more of it. What? Why is David Warner in the movie? <laughs> so he could I, be in a better role in Star Trek Six. He's yeah, he's in it, the, it does he's in the movie like for like he's gonna five be a big minutes. villain, and then the movie's like I'm he, not interested in like that. there's like a whole sequence at the beginning that sets him up like oh this is an important character, and I feel like you see him like twice more. <laughs> Like, yeah, he does. He does. He just says Eden at the end. He's like, yeah, at the end, the he has, okay, he's well. combed his hair and is now a sexual partner to the Romulan. Yeah, good for him. It's very strange. I like because like I remember I saw him. And I'm like, oh, David Warner. I don't. I forgot that he was in this. And then I realized, well, that's why because he's not really much in. <laughs> yeah, you you remember him in Six though, right? Yeah. Who, who does he play in Six? He's the like the main Klingon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I don't want to reveal more. But anyways, uh, different character. That's the great part about Star Trek is that you can just throw on makeup and play a different character. The <laughs> amount of actors who have played like three different people in Star Trek is pretty high. Has uh, Jeffrey the last Combs thing I'll... played multiple or is just one. Oh, Jeffrey Combs in it. Yeah, he plays multiple. He so he eventually gets to Wayun in Deep Space Nine, who's like this recurring villain in the back half of that series. Uh, he's so good, but he. He was in other Star Trek episodes. Uh, can we do a episode later that's just a Jeffrey Combs uh, honorary, honorary where you just watch all those episodes? Uh, yeah, I'm into that. Um, yeah, I think he's played three different Star Trek roles. That would make a good um, episode, right? Yeah. Well, one of those one of those roles he played like for 15 or 20 episodes. He became kind of a series regular at the end of Deep Space Nine. And he's awesome as a... As the bad guy on that. But anyways, last thing I'll mention is that Peter, uh, one of the marketing, so the marketing department or whatever, the toy department or the merchandising department uh, made a product from this uh, movie that is pretty infamous as like the worst movie tie-in of all time. I don't know if you researched it uh, or it came up in your notes, but can you take a guess at what they created merchandise for based on this movie? God. <laughs> <laughs> nope the fan dance <laughs> no peter do you have a guess uh uh, uh no 
Free, so you know you know when they're roasting marshmallows? Yeah. Yeah. And he oh. pulls out a futuristic marshmallow carrying case. <laughs> they made that? They made the Star Trek V is the Star Trek V branded marshmallow dispenser. Didn't mm. come with marshmallows, but you could in theory hold your marshmallows in it and then pull it out. In a plastic case. Look it up. Nice. It's a real thing that they marketed. Uh, can you imagine? <laughs> How could you? Um, I don't know. A plastic carrying case for all of your marshmallows. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it says Star Trek V. Kind of looks like a shuttlecraft. Great. Um, which now would be a joke product. Uh, but I'll tell you what. 1989. Nope. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta get that money. Yeah. So, yeah. My final thoughts on this movie. This is 100% the worst of the original series movies. <laughs> Um, I had a lot more fun with it than I expected. And Zach, you touched on it earlier. Part of it is just like, at some point, something becomes something of a limited currency. And that's like what, what value is based on, especially when it comes to money and other things. And so like, when I saw this originally, um, it's not that they were still making original series movies. They had stopped the last one a few years before I saw this movie. But it still just felt like there was so much Star Trek for me to experience with Kirk and Spock and McCoy and then going on to the next generation and all that kind of stuff. Like, there was a lot of Star Trek for me to, to see. And so much so that, like, I was combing video stores to find, like, those one episodes that I could rent of the original series. And now watching it again, like, it's, it's a poorly made movie. It's a well shot movie. It's interesting to look at. The special effects are really fun. It... It doesn't lose consistency from the other movies. If you watched it with the sound off and just were like playing Star Trek movies past one next to each other, you may mistake a scene from this as a scene from one of the other. Yeah, it's not like right? Superman four where it's like no. What happened? Yeah, it didn't. It didn't go to. <laughs> this wasn't Canon Pictures Star Trek five. Now watching it and ha- having not seen it in a while, it does feel like oh yeah, like there's six of these. There's there's five of them with their red sweaters that I watched so much as a as a kid and like and I get to see you know Shatner be Kirk and DeForest Kelly be McCoy and Leonard Nimoy be Spock and I get to see some cool starship stuff and bird of prey and Klingon makeup and like these movie level special effects from the 80s. So, yeah, it's silly. It doesn't add up to anything. And it is very much like both a compromised vision and also like the auteur behind the compromised vision is fucking William Shatner. But at the end of the day, like, yeah, I'll watch this again. This is like, I'm not going to skip over it the next time I do a full rewatch of these movies like I've done for a long time because it's, you know, it's fun. Uh, Zach, do you want to go next? Yeah, I I mean I it's basically very similar to my thoughts. Like it's I I enjoy watching it. I mean, even when I'm like why is this happening right now? I I still <laughs> I'm like, huh, whatever. As compromised as what's there is, it doesn't feel like it's not incoherent. Like yeah. I, I everything fits together. It's just it fits together into something kind of dumb. Like <laughs> like the fact that it is put together in a way that like isn't incoherent and doesn't make me confused or like leave me like like picking it apart while I'm watching it, I, I it makes it kind of like I I I put up with the weirdness and the dumbness 
because there's enough there that's strong that I like that I don't yeah. care. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's that kind of thing where like um, this is definitely silly and dumb, but I think, that's a worse that's a, that's a lesser crime than being boring yeah. like nine and ten or being like offensive like into darkness. Like I already mentioned Superman, so like I'll I'll mention it. Like Superman three is like the Superman movie that like a lot of people hate, and I'm like I really like this movie a lot because <laughs> like Superman three is like just this weird adaptation of everything strange about silver age Superman comics. Nothing makes any real sense, but like it makes its own internal sense. <laughs> like, like it's internally, like it, it has its own like kind of logic. It's just, that doesn't make sense to the movies you've seen up till now. And this is kind of like the Superman three of the series for me. Like it still like looks as good as the others. And yeah, it's like a, a weird step in another direction that doesn't really make a like doesn't fit with the other films necessarily, but it also like I'm fine with that diversion because there's there's six movies and I don't need six identical movies. I like the other five just fine. So what's what's you know what's wrong with this little diversion into strange territory? When you say like a diversion into strange territory, uh, I have to say like the only parts of this movie that I liked were the like strange outlier moments. Like yeah. as a whole, uh, I feel like the themes and the scenes and the, the moments were all captured better in previous movies. Um, it does feel like it's a rough approximation of, you know, the, the first th- uh, three movies. Um but uh, there were a few moments that brought me joy, and one of them is uh, Cybok, um deciding to give God therapy so much that God explodes. And for that, I feel like the movie deserves uh, a special place um, in Star Trek history. Uh, <laughs> Cybok blows up God by giving him therapy. And then the, another fun little moment that I like isn't, isn't that what therapy essentially does? For yeah, most they people. say therapy never hurt anyone, but uh, have we considered that maybe, just maybe, God is dead and we gave him therapy? They the other moment that I really want to call out is, and there is a moment of comedy I really like, and I don't know if this was intended to be as funny as it was, but there's a moment when they're all sitting around the campfire and Spock goes, um, <clears throat> "I have little choice but to sample your beans." it's pretty good it's pretty funny yeah it's very good i think it's on purpose um Um, and then a a final moment that i really i really like is like as someone who uh rock climbs uh not in a a professional way where i'd be climbing i'll cap but um someone who rock climbs uh having this movie start with a sort of like ode to this uh at that point it had been well emerged uh but this sort of uh activity that was coming into the mainstream and it was about a decade almost perfectly a decade before mission impossible 2 got to got in the game um it's just kind of fun for me um it's just kind of fun to watch people out like they're not actually climbing el cap obviously they're climbing yeah. uh, a composite wall in yosemite though and you can see el cap in the background <laughs> they assembled it in a parking lot in yosemite which is just very yeah. it's a very interesting production idea like did you guys know green screen exists? Later on, you seem like you know green screen. <laughs> but um, you see Kirk stressing, like sweating and like actually trying to like hold his position somewhere. And I was like, maybe he did bol- do a little bit of bouldering to figure out how to make these moves look okay. Um, 
Yeah, so all those weird little moments that like sort of stand out stray uh, made this entertaining for me, but I, I'll probably never watch this ever again. Uh, yeah, uh, I, uh, again, disagree with you, Peter, but this is, again, I didn't expect you to love Star Trek V. Um, <laughs> like, there's this, I was surprised you liked Star Trek One and Three, so I feel like, uh, again, not surprised that the worst uh, original series one, the one that has, like, almost no redeeming qualities except in kind of camp is something you didn't like i did look it up uh jeffrey combs uh played has played seven characters on star trek oh yeah and he's in 31 episodes of deep space nine and 11 episodes of enterprise so we could do a whole combs-a-thon uh i'd love that that'd be a fun that'd be a fun later episode when we're we're trying to figure out how to wrap the series up it's never wrapping up. There's so much Star Trek, Peter, and I just bought the entire Next Generation on Blu-ray. We're doing this forever. Um, uh, anyway, speaking of forever, um, next week we are wrapping up the original series uh, movie. I don't know why I said next week. Who knows the fuck when? But the next one of Star Trek you will get will be uh, wrapping up the original series movies with, I would dare say, like, this gets tough between two. Four. So four is my favorite. Two is like traditionally like the most Star Trek movie and um, the best one structurally. I think you could make the case that Star Trek six is like the best movie from a emotional resonance, from a I think six directing is- standpoint, from a story standpoint. Like six is so good. I think six is my favorite of the six. A reasonable choice. Like I. I think sometimes I prefer six to two overall, even though like, again, these are, these are like grains, not degrees, but, um, but yeah, so I'm very excited. Uh, uh, I, this is a tough one to pair it with, so I haven't quite decided which one to do. It'll be the last original series episode we'll do for a while, but we are going to go back to those when we cover the JJ Abrams, uh, reboot. So, uh, Peter row, row, row your boat. (laughs) Um, row, life is row, but a dream. Your boat. Yeah, we could have done a round. We could have, uh, but we're not going to. Uh, good night, everyone. <laughs> good night.